Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Talk of the pandemic dominated this week's annual meetings of the American Economics Association. COVID-era behavior has revealed some of the discipline's failings. Turns out, big global shocks tend to provide a needed dose of economic reality. And Agitu Gudetta made great use of overlooked resources in northern Italy, turning forgotten land and a few goats into award-winning cheeses and a beloved social enterprise. Our obituary editor reflects on her inspiring life and untimely death. But first... Dozens of pro-democracy politicians and activists were arrested in Hong Kong this week under the territory's new security law. Uh, we have arrested 53 persons for the offenses of a subversion under the national security law. On Wednesday, more than a thousand officers were dispatched to arrest people involved in unofficial primary elections last year. They had hoped eventually to gain a pro-democratic majority in the Legislative Council, or LegCo. Among those arrested was John Clancy, an American citizen. It was the first time the law had been used against a foreigner. He was released yesterday without further charge. And prominent democracy activist Joshua Wong, who was already in prison for his role in last year's protests, was reportedly re-arrested and taken to a detention center for questioning. It's not the first time that the police have been willing to use the new law to clamp down on activists, but it is a major escalation. Well, the national security law was imposed directly by Beijing last June, and its point was, first of all, to put an end to the anti-government protests that had roiled the territory in 2019. Dom Ziegler is our Asia columnist and is based in Hong Kong. The second point of the law is to cut the democratic opposition down to size and to eradicate any threats that the Communist Party in Beijing might perceive to its own rule. The act criminalizes things like succession, subversion and colluding with a foreign power. And the sentences are potentially steep, anything between 10 years and life for the most grievous crimes. So how has that law been used since it was implemented? To date, actually, the Hong Kong police and prosecutors have used the law relatively sparingly. In fact, using Hong Kong laws to go against anti-government protesters on the whole. The notable exception is the combative and outspoken media mogul, Jimmy Lai. But that all changed this week. In a pre-dawn swoop, a thousand or so police officers rounded up 53 democratic anti-establishment politicians and activists. And these were people who had taken part in an informal primary election for elections for the Legislative Council, known as LegCo, which were due to be held last September. 
So why was this primary seen as so threatening, grounds for arrest even? Well, the point of this unofficial primary was to produce a unified slate uh, from a camp of often quite fractious democratic activists and politicians. In other words, in order to have a better chance of getting a majority of seats. In the event, after more than 600,000 Hong Kong people voted in these primaries, the event was moot because Carrie Lam, the chief executive, postponed LegCo elections for a year, ostensibly because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And then in November, Beijing disqualified four LegCo members for being insufficiently loyal and patriotic. And in response, the rest of the existing democratic legislators in the LegCo resigned. So there is now no formal democratic opposition. So just trying to be successful in an election was itself seen as a threat? Well, yes, at the time, Carrie Lam described the primary as subversive. And the reason she did was her horror at the prospect of the anti-establishment pro-democratic camp winning a majority of seats in LegCo. Now, certainly that is what many Democrats hoped that one day might happen. And it is, after all, what democracy is all about, a change of government. But that is anathema not only to the executive-led Hong Kong government, but also to its communist masters in Beijing. And as you say, before this week, the the law hadn't really been, been used in anger, as it were. Why do you think that tactic changed this week? I think the tactic changed this week as a measure of how the authorities are cracking down on all democratic anti-establishment opposition. The red lines that Beijing intended with this national security law are becoming clearer. And the implication is that in future, patriotism and loyalty are all. They're the key tests now in Hong Kong, and they are tests that are set and adjudicated and judged by China's communist leaders in Beijing. And for those who have been arrested this week, what what happens next? Well, what happens next is interesting because Hong Kong's courts, who will oversee these cases, are still independent. And Hong Kong's courts, unlike the communist-run ones on the mainland, still have very high standards of evidence. They will also need to be persuaded that the threat of subversion was was both material and imminent. So it's quite possible that many of those arrested, in fact, won't be charged. It's quite possible that maybe whom the authorities perceive to be the ringleaders will face charges. But even then, their conviction is not assured. And if it isn't, well, then that's an embarrassment for the government, which in the end, only adds to its troubles trying to govern a rather restive territory. Well, I suppose that's the question. Will arresting all of these people fire up the pro-democratic camp or or just cow them further? Well, there's no doubt that as the scope of the national security law is broadened, it will have a deterrent impact on open opposition. And already we see other political groups, NGOs and the like, closing down for fear of being caught in the dragnet. But although the law has ended street protests, it does nothing to address the deeper-seated issues in Hong Kong, and some of them are very grave. On the political side, a very large proportion of Hong Kong people feel that their views are not being represented. On the economic side, there's immense inequality in a territory that panders first and foremost to business. It's quite possible that grievances might in future re-emerge into the open again. And and what about the the international view here of of this sort of amping up of the crackdown and the effects it'll have on Hong Kong, for example, as a a center of finance? Given this emphasis on loyalty and being seen to be, as it were, pro-China, very few businesses or executives have dared speak up 
although that's slowly changing. But it's the case that for some, the crackdown has been welcome and beneficial. It's ended the civil disturbance and unrest. It's brought calm back to the streets. And it's allowed financial firms, businesses with dealings in China to carry on and make money as ever. But for others, particularly for multinationals with their regional headquarters in Hong Kong, well, then the crackdown is troubling. And some people are starting to to express concerns in public. For instance, just recently, the head of Sweden's Chamber of Commerce tweeted that Hong Kong's crackdown was, quote, having a significant negative impact on business. So with all that in mind, then, is is the, the security law having the effects it intended? Will it work as intended? Well, although from the point of view of, of those who promulgated it, the national security law is having its effect, it doesn't really make life any easier for Carrie Lam, the chief executive. She is assailed on all sides from those with democratic leanings, those unhappy with the economic direction, but also by the establishment types who think that she should have been far more forceful in the pandemic. And there are, after all, those who want her job when she steps down next year. Finally, she is not loved, respected or even trusted by the authorities in Beijing who blame her for drawing them into the Hong Kong mess. So a broader crackdown, but still no answer to some of Hong Kong's much deeper problems. Dom, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. For plenty more views on the ground from our international network of correspondents, subscribe to The Economist. You can get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from The Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Every January, a curious migration occurs as thousands of economists from around the world flock to one major American city or another for the annual meetings of the American Economic Association. We are live, everyone. Welcome, everyone, to our session. The pandemic upended the annual rite this year and instead enabled attendees to peer into the living rooms and offices of scholars as they presented their work via Zoom on Indigenous Nations' economic strategies. The effects of automation on wages. A panel discussion of the economic impact and policy responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. It's not surprising that the coronavirus crisis has been a big area of study for economists. Over the past year, many countries have been forced to shift their economic policies almost overnight. But the challenges posed by COVID-19 have inspired not only a research frenzy, but also some soul-searching in the profession itself. What really stood out to me, and perhaps because it spoke to a lot of the themes at the conference, was a keynote lecture that was delivered by an economist called Emmanuel Saez. Ryan Avent writes Free Exchange, our column on economics. He's a fairly well-known, respected economist at the University of California at Berkeley who has done quite a lot of work on inequality. 
So it's, it's a great honor to be uh, here today in those very uh, special uh, circumstances, you know, having to give this lecture through Zoom. But I'm This lecture, it was less about work that he had done, you know, being presented to economists and more about speaking to the economists in the audience regarding their approach to economics and specifically to the way they think about welfare programs and how we try to produce a progressive society. And what exactly did he have to say to them? Right. So, you know, every year there are lots of sessions about pensions and health care and how much can we afford to boost these programs? You know, what are the costs in terms of the taxes needed to fund them and that sort of stuff? And Saya sort of said, well, let's step back and think about the assumptions that we're going into that we're embracing as we go into these conversations. Standard economics is based on rational and self-centered individuals interacting through uh, markets. Yet it is And where he began was with the way that economists kind of build these models about welfare programs. And they start with the assumption that people really act as individuals, that they're perfectly rational, that they behave in terms of their own self-interest first and foremost. And if you make those assumptions, then that places some pretty significant constraints on how generous a welfare state can be. Because if you're a perfectly rational, self-interested homo economicus, then if the government raises taxes to pay for welfare programs and offers more generous benefits, you're going to work less. You're going to pay less in taxes and the whole system sort of falls apart. But Sias says, if we look at how people actually behave, this is not that accurate. And it ends up being pretty important that these assumptions are incorrect when we start thinking about the welfare state. So in what way does that, that simple model fail? So Saez points to a few different things that you get wrong if you go in with that standard economic approach. One is that you end up trying to think about government programs as an economist would, as sort of this technocratic way to solve market failures. But that's not at all how normal people think about them. Based on ideas about fairness, based on ideas about what's right and wrong, societies have decided collectively to address problems like poverty and old age by adopting government programs like pensions. They've decided to address the need to educate everyone in society by providing compulsory public education. And if you require all kids to get education, you in turn need uh, public funding. Otherwise, low-income parents wouldn't be able to pay. And that gives all children, you know, basic education and opportunity. That's one thing. I think the second thing is that the constraints that apply if you assume everyone is kind of a hard-nosed, self-interested jerk, aren't necessarily as binding in the real world because people don't just have those motivations. You know, they care about other things. They care about fairness. They care about their own individual status. If you want, you know, fairness, think about that as resigning, you know, freeloaders uh, or tax cheats, you know, that is people who take advantage uh, of the system is our intuitive way to uh, reduce efficiency cost of... Uh, so if you're a healthy adult in middle age and you decide to just dodge your taxes or not work because you can collect welfare, you face some social stigma for that. And because those norms apply, people end up working hard despite the fact that they have to pay taxes or could collect welfare insurance payments. And that helps ensure that these generous welfare programs don't have the drag on efficiency, the economic costs that economists might assume they have. And looking at behavior through that lens, though, what, what kind of prescriptions does that bring? How, how should economic policy change in light of us being slightly less, well, hard-nosed, self-interested jerks, as you put it? 
Well, I think the first emphasis that he was trying to, to kind of lean on was not just that policy should change, but that economics itself should change. If you're a scholar and you're really interested in trying to understand what the limits are on the generosity of the welfare state, or if you're just trying to understand what's going to happen when a particular policy is adopted, this assumption of strict rational self-interest is going to lead you to some incorrect conclusions. And in some cases, if you're making policy in a way that kind of is complementary to prevailing social norms and ideas about fairness, you can probably get away with a lot more than economists had typically assumed. I mean, it makes a great deal of sort of intuitive sense. Is that going to make big <laughs> ripples in the economics community? Do, do a lot of people agree with uh, that kind of assessment? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's an interesting question, Jason. I, I feel like if you get an economist into a bar and just have a, a conversation with them or her, they're going to talk to you and say, look, we know these things matter. We know that people aren't robots who are sort of, you know, making all these calculations about self-interest all the time. But making that assumption makes it a lot easier to analyze real-world problems, and, and that's kind of why we need to focus on that. And so I think because of how pervasive that kind of attitude is, you know, it's hard to imagine sweeping changes to incorporate ideas about values and norms and social preferences happening along quickly. But I do think that the experience of the pandemic makes clear that all these things that economists have tended to neglect end up being really important. And so I think that this kind of message that Sai has had is one that may resonate a lot more now after the COVID-19 experience than it would have three or four years ago. So why is it that it takes big, global, dislocating, massive, crumbling events to make economists realize how people actually behave? <laughs> I think part of it is just that economics actually really is a very difficult thing to study because you can't take entire economies, entire societies, and divide them in two and, and treat one with a major crisis and another with business as usual and see what happens. You have to wait for natural experiments to come along most of the time. And so you really do need these kinds of stress tests that are just provided by historical events to learn some things. I mean, the Depression was obviously a horrible human tragedy, but it was also something that was incredibly informative for economists that really completely overturned the way they think about the world. And that's kind of the way economics goes in a lot of uh, in a lot of cases. That you, until you get these big disruptive events, you can't learn important things. Ryan, thank you very much for your time. Jason, it's always a pleasure. Agitu Gudetta was a goat herder. Anne Rowe is our obituaries editor. She had a herd of 180 goats by the end, started with 15. And they were a particularly lovely sort of goat. The ancient race of the area she lived in, in the very north of Italy. They had long shoulders, short backs, noble heads with wonderful horns on them, curved like the horns of gazelles. And she would love to simply sit among these goats and watch them as they grazed and make friends with them. She knew all their names and their characters and led them out every day to pasture with her stick and would shush them and hum to them as if they were a crowd of children and she was taking them on a great adventure. The place she lived in was called the Valle di Felici, she was a very strange character in this valley because she was black and she was Ethiopian 
and had come over as a refugee. So she looked completely different. She was now in a place where people had never seen a black face before. And now there was a woman among them who was not only black, but living by herself up in the woods with a great herd of goats. She'd come to Italy in 2010, fleeing Ethiopia because she had been working there to campaign for and defend nomadic farmers whose lands were being seized by the government and in the end got into quite a dangerous situation and there was an arrest warrant out for her. So she decided she had got to flee and uh, eventually came to Italy. Her own background was actually in nomadic herding and she was very keen to try to make a life that centered around goats. The first thing she had to do was find some land. In fact, the valley was a place where people had been leaving for the cities for many decades. It had emptied out and there was a lot of communal pasture land that was simply going to waste. And as soon as she'd bought her goats, the original 15, she put them on the pastures sold milk and yogurt and then she started making cheese then the next thing she did was to run a market stall and set up a shop in Trento which she called the happy goat and this really summed up her philosophy of life that she'd made the goats happy by putting them on the open pasture where they could graze freely and they'd given their milk happily and then she was selling it in the town and making the town happier by giving it milk and cheese and other good things. So she became quite a figure in the town and much loved for all the enterprise and energy she was bringing to the place. However, she wasn't universally loved. There were always people who found her a little bit disturbing just from the colour of her skin, also sometimes because she was so full of new projects and they were not quite so ready to embrace them as she was. And another thing that worried them was the fact that she would take on other refugees and migrants from Africa and take them up with the goats and teach them how to be goat herders so that there were other black men this time living up in the woods. And this was beginning to feed the prejudices of the locals. And she found that there were people beginning to stalk her or they would start to harass the goats. They'd ride their motorbikes among them or they'd set their dogs loose among them. And one day in 2018, a man came into her dairy as she was cleaning and he put his hands around her neck and told her to go back to her own country. So things were getting a little bit difficult for her, but she still kept going. And it was only just after Christmas that she got into a much worse sort of trouble, actually with the young men that she had taken on and tried to help. She got into an argument with the latest of them who came from Ghana about unpaid wages. And in the end, he simply killed her, laid into her with a hammer. When the murderer fled away 
from the scene, he went up to the barn where she had kept the goats and tried to hide among them, but the animals were too agitated and too much missing their mistress to hide him effectively, and he was arrested and taken away. The neighbours rallied round. Because the goats were very hungry, they went up through the snow and fed them, as they knew that Agitu Gudetta would have done and would have kept the herd safe, and they felt it was now their responsibility to carry on her legacy in the valley. Anne Rowe on Agitu Gudetta, who's died aged 42. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and see you back here on Monday. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.